Back in 2009 at the College Championship Bowl, one of the quarterbacks for one of the teams, a man named Tim Tebow, on his eye black, this stuff that's put under their eyes to help from the glare, wrote John 3.16. That day and the next day, John 3.16 was the most searched term on Google with over 90 million searches. People wondering about that. And so maybe some of those of us sitting here in church are wondering, how could people not know John 3.16? But my question is, how many of you know John 3.15 or 3.14? We just read it. It's what Leonard Sweet refers to as versitis that some of us experience. That we know verses, but sometimes we forget the context, the rest of the story. And John 3.16, don't get me wrong, is a great verse to know. But I think as we learn the rest of the story and see everything going on around it, we realize there's much more to it. That's some deeper and richer meaning to it. So in, we're in John chapter 3. So what's gone before in the story of John is John is telling the story of Jesus. Earlier in chapter 2, Jesus has gone to a wedding. And there at this wedding, he has changed water into wine. This symbol of Jesus as the new means of purification. That he has come to bring purity to people. But also the superabundance of God's grace. If you read the story, Jesus produces wine, but wine in abundance in the best of wine. And the story we looked at last week was Jesus in the temple. And Jesus drives out these money changers and the animals from the temple. And in that story, we see how Jesus is saying that the sacrificial system, this old system is being replaced. But he's also reminding the people that he himself is the temple. He is the presence of God. And so we see these things. We have the systems of purity and the systems of temple. And this is going to upset the religious leaders, the leaders of the day. And so then as we start in chapter 3, we're introduced immediately. And it says, now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So we're introduced immediately saying, here we're meeting a Pharisee. Now for me, growing up in the church, I heard Pharisee, I immediately thought, these are the bad guys. And even the way we use the word Pharisee, and it's not just people in the church, but people outside the church, the term Pharisee means what? It's a hypocrite. It's somebody who's stuck on the rules and the legal. But that's not really a good picture of the, who the Pharisees were. There was some of that to be sure. And in some sense, we don't know a lot about the Pharisees. We don't know there were probably a couple of thousand of Pharisees. That they were very concerned with purity. That they were concerned with the keeping of Torah, of the commandments of God, of God's instructions. But the reason for that was because they believed that God had a special purpose for Israel. And that God would restore them. And part of the restoration plan was them returning to that. So they were looking back to their past and saying, we need to recover who God has called us to be. To be these pure people and, and maybe out of that to rise up as a power, as a nation because they were trapped. And so here they are under the rule, under the authority of the Romans. And they believe that they need to recover their purity. And so the Pharisees are pushing for this. And so here comes this Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. And he comes, it says, at night. And we're not sure why he chooses at night. It could be a symbol of darkness and light that John plays with. It could be that Nicodemus was afraid. That he was coming to see Jesus and he didn't want anybody else to know. It could be that he came to Jesus at night because Jesus wasn't as busy at night. 
And so if he came to him at night, he knew that he would get some uninterrupted time. So nevertheless, here we have this man named Nicodemus who comes to Jesus. And he comes and he says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And so he has these questions. Again, we wonder, is it an honest question? Is he trying to trap Jesus? We don't really know. But what is he saying? He's saying, we've seen signs. We've seen the things you've done. And so we know you are coming from God. We know, in a sense, that the kingdom of God is present around you. And Jesus does what Jesus does so often. He kind of takes the conversation a different direction. And he says to Nicodemus, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus says, we know you come from God because we've seen the signs. And Jesus says, no, the only way to see the signs is to be born again. Now, born again is another one of those kind of church words, isn't it? Church language, I don't think it's as popular now as it once was. I mean, that was a, I would say, 70s, 80s, even into the 90s, the idea of being born again. And born again, in some circles, has the same kind of connotations or can be used in the same way as a Pharisee. It can be a negative word. Where somebody gets born again, in other words, what happens when someone gets born again? They get religion. They get born again, and all of a sudden, they begin to think that they're a little bit better than everybody else, that they're following these new rules, and so someone might speak in a derogatory term and says, oh yeah, they got born again. They got religion, and now they've changed their ways, and they're following all these rules. But here's Jesus talking to a Pharisee. He's a Bible scholar. He's somebody who is all about purity and following the rules. He doesn't need more religion. So what is Jesus saying to him? Is he saying, well, you just need to get more religion? He's saying something different. And Jesus goes on and kind of expands with it because Nicodemus doesn't get what he's talking about. Nicodemus is like, well, I'm old. How can I be born again? What do you mean by that? And Jesus says, well, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. So he's kind of expanding on it, saying, you need to be born again, or you need to be born of water and the Spirit. Because that makes it so much more clear, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly what's going on. Nicodemus says, well, I need born again? I, what, what, I, I can't go back inside of my mother. And Jesus says, well, let me explain it to you. You need to be born of Spirit and water. At which point we all say, oh, I get it now, right? But we have to remember... Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were, if nothing else, they were Bible scholars. They knew their scripture well. And so when Jesus is talking about being born of the water and being born of the Spirit, he is alluding to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the scriptures, because, just a reminder, when Jesus was around, we didn't have gospel. We had the Bible was just Genesis through Malachi. The Hebrew Scriptures. And so he's saying there were things in the Hebrew Scripture that you should be looking to. For example, Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. So we hear the word water. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And Ezekiel is talking about this future time when God will bring restoration. 
And then Ezekiel goes on. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So what words did we just hear? Water and spirit. And so what's Ezekiel getting at? He's saying that when God does his work of bringing people, he's going to do things. He's going to cleanse and he's going to restore. The water's going to wash and then he's going to put a spirit in to restore. And it's not a matter of just learning more or getting religion. It isn't even just simply a new start. We've just passed into 2022 and sometimes people begin a new year and they're like, oh, it's time for a, a reboot, a new start. I'm going to... And God's saying, you don't just need to a new start or even to start over again. He's saying you need a whole new life. Jesus says you need to be born again. This isn't just going back to last week and start. This is going all the way back and becoming a new person. And it only comes from God. And what Jesus is getting at is that it's something everyone needs. Everyone needs cleansed and renewed. And that's the only way to enter the kingdom of God. You're not going to enter it by knowing all the right verses. You're not going to enter it by your own action. But you're only going to enter it if you've been cleansed by God and had a renewed heart from God. And Nicodemus still seems confused. Verse 9, well, how can this be? And I like Jesus' response, verse 10. You are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things. In other words, you're supposed to be the Bible nerd here. You don't get it. What's going on? And Jesus is wondering, and then he kind of talks about the testimony and stuff, but I want to move on to these other key verses here. So we've got the setup for the story. Nicodemus says, oh, we see what you're doing. We know you're from God. Jesus says, you can't see unless you're born again. Nicodemus, what do you mean born again? Jesus, born of spirit in the water, cleansed and renewed. Nicodemus, I still don't get it. Jesus says, come on, you're the teacher. And then Jesus just makes things even more confusing. I always wish Jesus would just, you'd think he would just make things more clear all the time. Because then he goes on to these next few verses. And if you want to imagine what it was like when 90 million people Googled John 3.16, how many do you think would Google if Tim Tebow had written Moses and Snakes? Or Bronze Poles and Snakes? There would have been a whole lot more than 90 million people. It would have been most of the country going, what, what is that all about? Well, it's what Jesus talks about in the next verse. John 3, 14 and 15. That verse that comes before. So just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So what's this all about? What's he doing? Yeah, it's about the cross. He's talking about the cross. But this story from Numbers that we heard earlier. And so we go back to the book of Numbers. So quick setting of the book of Numbers. God's people have been in slavery in Egypt. God has brought them out of slavery. They've entered into this wilderness. They're heading for this land that God has promised to the people of Israel, the, God, his people. 
They're heading for this land. They're not doing very well. Eventually, they get to the land. They don't trust God, so God sends them wandering in the wilderness, and that's most of the book of Numbers. So at the beginning of chapter 21, they're there, and they've actually, God has helped them defeat some of their enemies. And things are going great. And then all of a sudden, the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and Moses. And said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And there's no bread, no water. We detest this miserable food. So all of a sudden, it doesn't take long. God helps them defeat some of the Philistines. Next minute, like, oh, we just want to go back to Egypt. It's miserable out here. Can't you do something about it? God has been providing for them all along the way. And then they come to this point where they stop trusting in God's provision. So at this point, God says, fine, you're going to complain, here's some snakes. He sends snakes to begin biting them. It says, the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many died. So what do the people do? They go to Moses and say, Moses, talk to God, fix this problem. At which point we would expect, okay, God so far has done exactly that. When something's wrong, when the people were hungry and they complained, he sent them manna. When they were hungry again, he sent them quail. When they were thirsty, he sends them water. And so you think God would say, okay, fine, and the snakes would just go away. But that's not what God does here. There's this really strange thing where Numbers 21, verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So God doesn't just make the snakes go away. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the bronze and cast this thing, make this snake on it, put it up on a pole and hold it up in the air. And if people look at the pole, they'll get cured. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And that's exactly what happened. They looked at the bronze snake and they lived. Now, does that seem strange to any of you? Yep, it does, doesn't it? So what in the world is going on? Why... Is there something else that's happening there? I think there's something else that's going on. One is that, what are the snakes? The snakes are God's judgment. God has sent this judgment in the form of snakes. And so, and why, are, why is the judgment there? Because they're failing to trust in God. They're failing to believe in God. And so there's this irony that's going on. Because where do we get all of our good theology begins where? Genesis 1 through 3, right? If we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, and I say this all the time and you guys don't believe me. You need to know Genesis 1 through 3. Because what exactly happens in Genesis 1 through 3? There's a snake that comes to the people and says, what to Adam and Eve? Don't trust God, right? And the people don't believe and they die. And so now here are these snakes, and there's this ironic thing that now the snakes are this thing, and now they're looking to the snake as a source of life. But why in the world look at a snake? What's the point? And I think what's going on here is God is saying, when you look at the snake, because if you were an Israelite, now you're in the desert, these snakes are all over the place biting you, and Moses comes out and says, here, I've got the cure. And they're all like, oh, you got some... Something we drink, something we cure, God's given. He's like, no, there's a snake up on a pole there. 
And I want you to look at it. You just want me to look at it? Just wanted you to look at it. So you look up and you see what on the pole? A snake. The same snakes that are biting you, another biting you. In other words, you're being reminded of what you have done. You're being reminded of God's judgment. In other words, you have to look your sin in the eyes. You're looking up there and saying, oh, yeah, I did that. The snakes are here because of me. And the other thing that's going on is that it's a call to faith because now, they, 3,000 years ago, didn't have the same understanding of medicine that we do. But they certainly knew that just looking at a pole doesn't cure you of a snake bite. So when you're invited to just look at a pole and be cured, what does that take? Faith. It takes faith. And so by doing this, God is saying two things. He says, one, I want you to look and to remember why you're dying, why you're being bitten. This is a reminder of your sin against me. But it's also a call to faith to do something totally ridiculous, something that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that just looking at a pole can save you. Just looking at this snake, which brings us back to Jesus' words in John chapter 3, verses 4, 14 and 15. Which again, just as Moses lifted up the snake, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Well, when is Jesus lifted up in the Gospels? On a cross. So just as Moses lifted a bronze snake up on a pole, so Jesus was lifted up on a cross that everyone who believes, trusts, puts their faith in, may have eternal life in him. Do you start to see the connection? And we read John 3.16... For those of us who need to Google it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now that remark sounds remarkably like what was just said in verses 14 and 15. So looking at that on the screen, I just want to read again 14 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So there's this connection going on between these two things, that there's a parallel that Jesus is setting up. He's dealing with this teacher and he's saying, there's a connection between what happened with Moses in the desert and what is about to happen in my life. The snake was what? It was a call to confront their sin. And so when we are called later to look at Jesus on the cross, it's a call for us to confront our own sin. To realize why Jesus is there and the consequences of it. Just as they looked at a snake on a pole and said, the consequence of our sin was these snakes biting us and, and death. Seeing Jesus on the cross is a reminder that the consequence of our own sin is also death. And so it's this Jesus setting up. And so it's tempting to simply read John 3, 6 and say, oh, God loved the world so much and which is in the so is really kind of like in this manner. But it's to say, when we look at the cross, we're called to realize our own sin, called to confront our own sin. There's a story about a, card, a, a Catholic archbishop, and he tells the story of this. 
that there were three mischievous young boys who went into a Catholic church one day. And they decided they were going to play a trick on the priest there. And they thought what they would do is they would go into the priest and they would just confess all kinds of crazy things and see how the priest would respond. And so if you're familiar in the Catholic Church, there's a confessional and you go into this booth and you confess your sins and oftentimes then the priest will give some sort of penance and also an absolution for sin and the penance is maybe something you're doing. And so these three boys come in and they come up with all kinds of crazy things they've done. Probably most of it just made up to just see how this priest is going to respond. And they're getting through and two of the boys get away. One boy doesn't get away. And the priest gets him and the priest kind of says, okay. I get what you're doing here. And so he decides to give this little boy some penance, something to do. And he says, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to go to the front of the church, and in many Catholic churches, there's a crucifix. It's a, it's a cross with Jesus on the cross. And he says, I want you to go and look up at the cross, and then Jesus on the cross, and I want you to say this. I want you to say, you did all this for me, and I care that much. And snap your fingers as you're saying that. He said, I want you to go up and say, you did all this for me, and I care that much. So the little boy went up to the crucifix, and he looked up, and he says, you did all this for me, and I care that much. He looked again, he said, you did all this for me, and I care that much. And then the little boy started the third time, and he couldn't go any further because he was simply overwhelmed by emotions and the realization of what's going on. And the archbishop goes on to say, the reason I know that story is true is because the little boy was me. You see, he was called in some sense to look on the cross and confront his own sin. And the second part of it is this idea of believing. To recognize that as Israel had to trust that looking at a pole could save them, so we have to recognize that our only hope we have for healing from sin and death is the death of Jesus on a cross. The only hope we have is to trust in this. And we could get into long theological baits and try and understand how it works and the mechanics of it. But at the end, in some sense, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to believe that Jesus dies and therefore he's taken the consequences of my sin. Jesus' death gives me new life. But what we're invited to do is not to understand it. We're not invited necessarily to be able to explain it with a theological argument. What are we called to do? To trust in it. To believe in it. To believe that God has given us the means to be healed. That our sin and the consequence of it, our death, God has given us the means to be healed. And that's Jesus on the cross. And so we're invited to put our faith in him. And so we ask ourselves some questions. One is, are we willing to look at our own sins? Are we willing, like the Israelites were invited to do, to look, not at a bronze snake, but Jesus on the cross, and confront our own sins? Not an easy thing to do. To look at the ways that we have 
sinned against our neighbors, sinned against God. For me, I know it's easy to make excuses, to look at things I've done and things I've said to people, the way I've treated people, the actions I've taken, the thoughts I've had, and to say, oh, well, but you know, I was really tired that day, but they did this to me. But it was just a little thing, and it's not as bad as these other people. But that was a long time ago, and I'm not that same person. Now, you probably don't make those same sort of justifications, those same sort of things. Or maybe you have some other ones. But with Jesus' death on the cross, what we're invited to do is to confront our own sins, to realize that we have chosen our own path over God's, that we are deciding for ourselves what's right and wrong, that we're failing to trust in God's goodness and grace. And we're invited to realize that we're infected, that we're in need of healing, and that the only way to be healed is to be cleansed and to have a new heart. And the only way to do that is to put our trust in Jesus, to give our lives to him, to say, he is the only way that I can be saved. To say, Jesus, I need you and nothing else. He's not just a good teacher. He's not something else, but he is the one who offers us salvation. So are we willing to put our trust in him? And finally, to look at the cross, to confront our own sins, to realize that Jesus is the only way. And also, finally, to see that on the cross we see God's love. That that verse, for God so loved the world, that God loved the world in this way, that that Jesus hanging on the cross, taking our sins upon himself, offering us new life, is the ultimate symbol of God's love for us. And that's why when we read these stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're called the gospel, the good news. Because that's the good news. And that's our good news for today, that when we look on the cross and confront our own sin, when we look at Jesus' death and trust in Him, when we give our lives to Him and say, you alone, Jesus, are the one who heals, what is it? Shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. That God gives us this gift of eternal life. And so we see our own sin on the cross, we see a need to trust, but at the end of the day, the, only, the other thing we see on the cross is God's amazing love for us, for each and every one of us. And so may we go forth this week with that good news, that God loved us in that manner, that God loved us in this way that He gave His Son for us, that by believing in Him, we will not perish but have eternal life. Amen.